Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In, the podcast that covers the game you know and love. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios, reminding you that this show is available on all your podcast platforms and comes to you each and every Thursday. We've got a great show this week as the month of February rolls along and the tennis calendar picks up. We have two great guests on this week's show. First up, it's Nico Pereira, a former tour pro, a commentator. And in my opinion, there's nobody out there that does more for Latin American tennis. Certainly no one that I've met than this guy. Nico's always generous with his time. We discuss the events taking place now at the Golden Swing. We also dive into Yannick Sinner's scintillating, sizzling start as he's undefeated after winning Rotterdam, what to expect when Rafael Nadal comes back, and a plethora of other topics with Nico Pereira. And then for the first time on the show, it's Abigail Johnson, a rising commentator and media personality out of the UK, making her Tennis Channel debut on T2 all week. Abigail discusses how she manifested this career that she's always wanted, getting in the door at such a young age, already doing so much, her views on commentary, her experiences, how she interviews the top players and techniques she has for the different mediums that she excels at. We also dive into the current storylines, Andy Murray's continued fight at the latter stages of his career, what to expect on the women's game with Igas Piontek dominating in the Middle East again, and more discussions, more storylines, more topics. It's Tennis All the Time with Abigail Johnson, and I'm delighted to have her on this podcast to break down some of the game's biggest and brightest storylines. It's Nico Pereira, followed by Abigail Johnson on Tennis Channel Inside In. Let's start the podcast. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, back again. Always fun to talk to this guy, especially in the month of February with the Golden Swing in action. I'll honestly say it, one of the voices in tennis and Latin America's finest, you know, champion of the game right now, Nico Pereira, back on the show. Nico, welcome back to Inside In. It's always that time of year. I really appreciate it. I'm keeping my eyes peeled on Latin American uh, tennis, and uh, it's just uh, awesome to talk tennis with you, man. We got an international show flavor. The last couple guests have been Latin America, Britain, South Africa, you know, so we're we're taking this podcast all around the globe, but it was a phenomenal week of tennis going into this one. And we start with it all the time. You know, it's not just about the Masters and the Grand Slams. Obviously, they hold the most weight, but this is a time to get ranking points, to build good or bad habits, unfortunately, and to really set your season up. No man has been better at that this year than Yannick Sinner, 12-0 now in 2024. He follows up his Aussie Open, his first Grand Slam win, with another tournament win. And it was shocking to kind of read Nico that you'd have to go all the way back to Leighton Hewitt, who won the next tournament after winning a Grand Slam. But 12-0, and wins Rotterdam again, and beats some good players along the way. This is, you talk about the tennis or sports in the zone, Yannick Sinner is firmly in the zone right now. Definitely. It was beautiful to see him win his first major and then follow it up in a loaded draw in, in Rotterdam, but the kind of tennis that he's playing, it's outstanding. He's just smoking that forehand. His first serves just keeps getting better. I feel that's an area that 
He has improved tremendously. He's also very confident coming in. What a difference <laughs> Darren Cahill has has made on on uh, Sinner's game. And I just feel that he's very comfortable. And when you look at him when he's on the court, he just has that look of confidence that uh -huh. he can overcome any obstacle in there. He's always been a clean ball striker. I was thinking of the signature. Like, if there's a signature Sinner shot, for me, it might be that stretch backhand because he still hits it so hard when he's, you know, all stretched out. But... I heard Paul Anacone say on a match he was calling, and it made me think about it, north-south movement has gotten better. And that's movement, but that's also the mindset of finishing points. I think he's playing so much smarter tactically. Uh, did you read any of the quotes, Nico, that he's that have come out about his mindset and where he's at, about how after AO, he just immediately thought about getting better? It just makes me think that he's the perfect mindset for a young player. He wins this title. And he's still locked in about, okay, it's still a process. That's one. I want to. Time to go back to work. Well, you were talking about, you know, the worldwide appeal of tennis. I see Sinner, you know, with that German mentality that he was brought up in. He also has, you know, that Italian qualities. Uh, his way of going about his business is just remarkable. And I go again to Darren Cahill. I got a guy that uh, knows what he's doing. And... Um, Yannick just taking full advantage of, of all that knowledge, and and that's part. You know, it's 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 uh, tennis is about evolving. We've known that for a long, long time, and now in this age of analytics, mm -hmm. you just has you just have to keep yeah. plugging the holes in your game and improving. There is there is no other way uh, around it because everybody's looking for the smallest of edges. Complacency could be the death of anyone, including the very best. So when you see the big three and even Djokovic still going, how they're adapting, you have no choice. Uh, but again, what more can you say? He's riding in with a lot of confidence. We'll see where it goes from here. But Yannick Sinner up to number three in the world. Highest ranked Italian man ever. Highest ranked Italian player ever. Um, and doing it, you know, for his country, a country that's had their moments in tennis history. But he's become the all-time highest ranked player. Yeah, when you when you talk about guys like, you know, Adriano Panata, Pietrangeli, and all that you know, tradition in, <laughs> in the game. And then you have a guy like Berrettini uh, go into the top 10 with an, as much flair as, as he has. And, and, and Yannick come in, coming in is so good for the game. You know, the way he talks about it, the way, how, how humble he is, how, how to keep it real in terms of how important it is compared to other professions. <laughs> I find it interesting, refreshing, and I just uh, love it that we have someone uh, come into the the... the the light yeah. in our sport that can transcend it. So, so welcome to the big time and couldn't be happier. And, and also going back to Berrettini, good news that he's, he's going to yeah. play in the Phoenix Challenger. So we, we wish him the best coming back. We certainly do. Uh, always like to see him on tour. Also, before we move on, uh, got to give love to a proper shout out to Alex Dimonar for another final run. You know, up to number nine in the world, 25 years old. But this guy who, again, beats good players to get there. All finals run count the same, but when you look at the resume, another top five win over Rublev, beat Dimitrov, who's playing great tennis, and gave Sinner a match. So Demon Hours really, Nico, unlocked something. And I'm curious your perspective. Why do you think it started to come together in 2024 and even into 2023 for the Demon? He just hit the weights. He, he okay. needed to, to gain 15, 20 pounds. And he did so. I remember his father came to me 
many years ago at the Australian Open to go check him out playing the juniors, and and he was 130 pounds, and he was very slight, you know, very fast, lightning fast. So I th I think. He has combined both. He, he, he's one of the best movers on tour. He's a great fighter and um, has managed to put some, some meat in those bones and some weight on, on his shots, and I think that has been the difference. Yeah, I remember the first time I really paid attention to how special he could be was he played Chilich at the U.S. Open, and this was Chilich like, at one of his peak levels, and Demonauer won the first two sets. Lot, ran out of steam down late, lost in five, but... This was a young demon hour against a prime guy, and his movement was what stood out. But I'm glad to see it. It's process, right? He knows that there's only one winner each week. He's taking each result and building on it. You know, beats Djokovic and then keeps this going after the you know, United Cup. But props to him. Uh, that's pretty much all I have on Rotterdam, other than the fact that I saw that Grigor Dimitrov has a new fan in Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Gave him a shout. I'm like, I, Dimitrov, everybody loves him. And then you see why, right? He's going into the crowd, taking selfies. He's just a, a total all-around guy. So, again, shout-out to Dimitrov, who's still in his 30s now. Looks fresher than ever. I love seeing him back. He also uh, got a lot stronger. If you see his right arm, it's it's bigger than it's ever been. I'm happy for that team with Danny Valverdu coming back in and, and seeing a resurgence in, in Grigor's uh, game, knocking on the top 10 again, I just, you know, couldn't be happier for, for a good guy. He's also in the in the player council, yeah. so he takes his, his tennis seriously. He gives back, and uh, hopefully he'll do well in, in majors, and why not? You know, he still, he still has time, and that's one of the main things, uh, keeping him going, trying to, yeah. to win a big one. You know, fitness is there for him. Uh, just remarkable to see Dimitrov still going away. Now, Nico, going to the Golden Swing, the first event was Buenos Aires, and I want to start with the number two player in the world, Carlos Alcaraz, who lost to Nico Jari in, in a match there. I don't want to be an alarmist. I know we had this discussion with Mark Petchy. He still has two majors. He's still 20. There's still so much to like about his game. But why do you think in this specific tournament, not just the Jari match, and we know how exceptional Jari can be, but why do you think Alcaraz was unable to find his top level in his first match since first tournament since the Australian Open? I think he's um, adjusting to the limelight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing winning the U.S. Open, with all due respect to New York and one of the greatest tournaments ever. Winning Wimbledon is just completely different, especially for a European. I just think it's it's a different stratosphere, and uh, I just think he's he's having a tough time with the limelight. Uh, adjusting to to that, adjusting to the the um, obligations that come with it, sponsors, uh, family time, training, which you can't forget. So now it's a whole different animal, you know. Yeah. The Netflix situation uh, now playing Nadal in Vegas, it's just a, it's a, lot. a big. It's a big animal coming up for him because he he will trans transcend tennis. And at that very young age, I think it's very difficult. So I think he, he's having ups and downs, but I am confident that, that he'll you know, achieve everything that he's going to set out to do. It's also hard, as you know, like the levels. To bring your A game every week is virtually impossible, and then you get back to a new surface. It's a smaller event. You're the top draw at the tournament, so there was a lot of pressure, I'm sure, on him there. That said, though, I mean, Jari's no slouch. He gave him a match at Wimbledon. He's got weapons, and I'd like to hear kind of from your perspective. This is the top-ranked Latin American player right now in the world into the top 20. What makes this guy so good and, and maybe on all surfaces? Yeah, couldn't be happier for him after the suspension. He came back smoking, really putting it out there, 
that big title in Santiago <laughs> last at this time last year was huge for his confidence. And he started playing well in majors, and he's not afraid of anybody. He's a guy that works diligently. He's now working with Juan Ignacio Chela, who was very successful with Schwarzman. So I expect that partnership to, to go on to bigger and better things. Why not dream with being a top tenor? He's got the tools and he's got the work habits. So, so this is a guy that comes from tradition. His, his you know, grandfather, huge in the, in the history of, of tennis. He's around. He, he keeps him grounded as well. And this is a guy married young, has kids. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he has his uh, head screwed yeah. on straight. So uh, I think that's going to go a long way for him. And uh, just couldn't be happier for, for a good guy and a good family in, in tennis. I was impressed by his style playing the Alcaraz match, getting the net, drop shotting the drop shot king and then how he dealt with i don't want to say the crowd the crowd was great but they're gonna cheer for alcaraz he's a hero and he handled it he didn't back down he played tough down to the finish he has the weapons i think he can be a very good player especially when they get back to the grass i'm like this guy is right up there with what he can do so oh definitely yeah. no he, he he as i said the grandfather the mother he's a and the aunt are the tournament directors in santiago his father is a top tier executive okay. uh, airline executive very smart guy so this is a guy that that comes from a family that that uh, really go about their business yeah. the right way and and i expect him to to keep uh, climbing yeah. up the rankings no slackers in that family no they no, no no they they together. are they're <laughs> gurus well well shout out to the guy who won the uh tournament Hakuna diaz acosta first yeah. title ever at the pro level, into I think the top 60 range now. He's 23 years old, the local guy doing good, and a big win, Jari, in that match. So what can you tell us about, you know, I don't want to say kid, he's like 23, but, you know, this is a breakthrough of all breakthroughs on your home soil. Well, this is uh, one of those cases of late bloomers. You know, he grew mm -hmm. up with uh, Baez, and he won in that same court the, uh, the World Junior Games uh, under 18s, and then he was a Pan American champion, and this is a guy that... Always had the confidence in his game, and uh, sort of the same as uh, Echeverry. That's another guy that popped into the scene last year and is doing really well. So Diaz Acosta, you know, was coming. Yes, he did not expect it. He already had his calendar made to play challengers in Europe, but now <laughs> inside the top sixty, uh, his whole life changed. These these are guys that don't don't have enough money to travel, and all of a sudden. This guy is finding himself that he's going to be joining in the biggest tournaments ever, and he's mm -hmm. going to compete against the best. He has the tools to compete, especially on the clay. Well, you said something interesting there, and it's that, you know, didn't have the money to travel, now has got the ranking points. I think a lot of tennis fans, maybe not the diehard nerds like ourselves, don't fully understand why this is so important to have the golden swing. Have tennis in a region of the country, region of the world that does not have it. Without these tournaments, this breakthrough doesn't maybe ever happen. You're not able to get to these events. You're not able to have a chance to break into the top 60. So for these players, for these Latin American players, this means so much as you can attest to. Uh, and I'm a little upset to be, to be honest because this week we have Rio and the same week we have Los Cabos and then next week we have Santiago but then we have Acapulco I mean we don't have enough ATP events in Latin America why put them in double up weeks let's give these guys a chance to play their whole swing near home where they you know enjoy the 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 mm -hmm. the, the 
costumes and the joy the idiosyncrasy so they have a, a shot at it you you've seen <laughs> what they can do when they play as locals why yeah. why not a stretch the Latin American swing and don't double up the weeks that is something I'm going to be bringing up because I, I just don't think it's fair to these guys I think that's a very good point, and we talk about tennis being a global game. This is, been, this is an opportunity to show that, that they might be just missing the mark by a little bit. Like, you need the opportunities. It's I a was, huge advantage. Yeah. I was shocked by the Los Cabos thing specifically, because I just totally, I thought I was misreading the schedule when I saw it in February. Yes, now it's I'm, a big you know. change, mainly due to uh, two factors, weather and audience. Mm -hmm. The weather is much nicer. As you can see, they're playing in the mid-20s uh, Celsius. Nice temperature. A uh, little rain in that time of year. And then they are catering to the uh, American crowd that goes to Los Cabos, which is, you know, basic for them in order to fill the stands. Yeah. And uh, they felt that this change was going to help them. Unfortunately, they're competing against a tournament in the Middle East, mm -hmm. but that is something that's going to, to grow more. And the, the, the owners of the tournament, which is, is the same owner, Los Cabos and Acapulco, are working hard to make mm -hmm. those two tournaments shine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More here with Nico Pereira on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, Got to give love as well to Taylor Fritz. Title number seven defends his Delray Beach Open Championship from a year ago. Beats his good friend Tommy Paul in straight sets in the final. Fritz was kind of looking for another good result, another tournament. He got that, Nico, but... The bigger news for me is 6-0 in his last six finals. And this wasn't a guy who had started like Ugo and Bear, just perfect. He was 1-5 before that. So he's flipped it in finals. And this match in particular, he grinded out that win. He was big on big points. His defense got better. His movements increased. And once again, he's hoisting that trophy in Florida. This is a guy that has supreme confidence besides you know, all, all, the, all his tools as, as a player and as hard as he works. He, he knows that when uh, the time to perform comes, he will be the one that comes out on top. And yeah. it just hasn't happened against the top guys. That's why he's in, in the back end of, of, of the top 10. But I think it, if he keeps working, it, it will come. He's that young and he's that committed. Uh, yes, there is holes in his game, maybe you know inside the paint, in the, in, in the volleys. He has improved with his feel. He improved tremendously his movement. That was the big difference of why he became a top-tier player. But the confidence, it's something that you either have or you don't, and, and Taylor Fritz definitely has it. Yeah, I was as impressed with any losing effort as his match in, with the Djokovic match in Australia, how in the elements he was fighting out there and wouldn't wilt all those big points. You saw all the work put in kind of personified in that match. And look, he's still... We've talked about a lot of Americans, and they've deserved a lot of praise, right? But Fritz is still number one for Americans. So 
a little slept on, if you ask me. And, and that's no knock on anybody else. But Fritz has held the top spot down. So I would be, you know, I'd be saying that if I was him. Like, hey, don't forget about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, you know, he, he doesn't seek the attention as much. Uh, but he has a nice crew of guys to keep him going in terms of pushing him to be the number one American, which I know it's very important for all of them. I mean, they are right on his on his heels talking about Tiafo and, and Tommy, Paul, and, you know, they, they, there's a nice, yeah. nice group. Marcos Giron has taken a few oh, steps yeah. forward, playing really good ball yeah. and get, getting to the finals of Dallas. So it, things are looking good. So on to this week's events and uh, Rio, obviously, in the Latin American swing, uh, a sizable event, had a great final last year in the Alcaraz Nori edition. Cam Nori being one of the names that has points to defend, had to make that decision playing here, not Los Cabos, but you called his first match yesterday and he looked pretty clinical, pretty professional in his approach. I am not, as more I watch him, not as surprised he does well here, but what about his game suits these events in this tournament? Well, you're always going to choose a 500 over a 250 <laughs> well, that, yeah. if that's the case. Uh, he, he loves playing Mexico. I remember yeah. Cam, when he came out of college, uh, right before his quarterfinal match in Los Cabos, he, he jumped out of an airplane and uh, he parachuted down. I mean, uh, this is a special kind of cat, and he's always done well. So, uh, you know, I, I know that he regrets not being able to go to Los Cabos because he's, he's had a special relationship with that tournament. And uh, talking about what what uh, goes well for him on the clay, getting to the finals of Buenos Aires last year, and then uh, getting revenge on, on Carlitos in uh, in Rio, I just think his forehand is brutal. You know, so it's one of the, yeah. you know, the shots that has the more spin and that on the clay is is paramount and then he can take the backhand early if he's pressuring you with the forehand and his movement has improved tremendously on this surface and and if you get the footing right on the clay uh, you're going you're going to go far if you're playing that aggressive game and, and the fighting spirit that this guy has he's just never say die he never lets his guard down and and that on the clay it will get you a long way and will get you a lot of wins. The footing is a good point. It might take some pros longer than others, but once they figure it out, once they master the dance, then it's yep. it's gravy from there. It's also good to see Stan down here. He's playing uh, Diaz Acosta in a little bit as we record this on uh, Tuesday. But, you know, Stan, I don't want to say swan song, but anytime he's playing these events at this age, you don't know how much more you're going to get. So glad he's down here. Glad the fans can show him some love and he can reciprocate that. He just loves it. <laughs> he's one of those Europeans that has a bit of a Latin flavor, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he, he <laughs> loves Buenos Aires and, and um, they love him there. And he really enjoys the time down there. And I think that's key. Plus, I mean, not too shabby. I mean, it's, it's it's a nice tour to no. go to Buenos Aires and, and Rio de Janeiro, to two of my favorite <laughs> cities out on tour, especially if you're going to be treated yeah. like that. I know they're treating him down there. Did, did you ever go to the big carnival? carnival? I did. did? I, danced, okay. I danced in two schools of samba because I, I lived in <laughs> okay. Rio for, for some okay. years while I trained there with my coach. So Okay, we don't have to lucky. tell all the stories. We can keep it no, off no. the record. Okay. Yeah. I know. No, it, it just looks like fun, and it does look like it, it, I bring it up because there's – all the stuff comes out, some of the coolest footage it's is a unique, tennis players joining the parade. It's a unique experience. I can go that far. One other player I want to get your take on because he's been struggling. He did win yesterday. That was Sarundalo, Francisco Sarundalo, a guy who had been playing well last year, had that epic match and brutal loss to Fritz on the, or beat Fritz rather than lost the next match to Holger Runa. 
I don't know what's exactly gone wrong. I think he's starting to build back up, but I wonder, Nico, if it might be the mental side of this game and how tough it is when you have a tough loss, when you have a stretch to find your footing. I hope yesterday he got back on track, though. Sophomore blues. Mm. Uh, it happens a lot in tennis. He had a break breakthrough year in 2023, especially Miami played really well. He's just a solid guy. He, he'll come around. It's, I think it's a, it's a glitch in his confidence. Mm. I'm sure he put in the, the work in the, in the offseason. Sometimes these guys want it so bad that they squeeze too tight. Yeah. And, and you have to let it flow. Uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, Francisco will, will come around. He's just a great player. He's, he's uh, working with Franco Davin now a little bit. And, yeah. and, and you know what Franco can do uh, when he comes into your corner. And, and hopefully there will be better things to come for them. Yeah, it's still one of the best forehands in tennis, like bar none, what he can do on all surfaces, um, especially the clay. You mentioned squeezing too tight. I was filling you in when you got here about uh, an example of that to the umph degree. Bodic Van Zandeschamp against Monfils. I mean, everybody listening probably knows the story by now, but Bodic loses that uh, second set tiebreak. Had eight set points in total, but it was the first time I can recall seeing a point penalty after a point you won. So that's just, I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to understand unless you've been out there like yourself, but losing it there in a tie break with set point is a tough one. It's, you know, it's a tough one for him going forward, losing a match, losing a set that he could have had. Well, he seems like a guy that has uh, his head on straight. He, you know, he's very disciplined or at right. least that's the way it looks. But this is something that will stay with him for a while. Eight set points? Wow. I mean, <laughs> come on. You're not saying three or four. You're talking eight. <laughs> eight. That, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, it was a classic Monfils match, though, where he was able to get the crowd going, some hot shots. And then the underrated part of his game for all the sizzle that he has, he can grind it out, too, when he needs a big Oh, he's a great point. defender. Yeah. He's such a great athlete and, and he's such a long Still. limbs and long range that when he's healthy and moving, he, he's one of the best defenders out there. Very underrated uh, defense that Gael has. And he, and he can cover a lot of ground standing way back on the court and you just don't find a hole to get through some have said he's the best athlete to ever play tennis it Most likely. might be yeah it yeah. might be tough to debate that got also finished with los cabos for a 250 event in mexico that is rescheduled when it is it's a pretty loaded field you're talking zverev sitsipas demon hour casper root is your top four seeds it's pretty good it's a pretty good draw to, to fill out well you know it's tricky you know yeah. you have the event in the middle east obviously you're mm -hmm. competing with the guarantees to get those guys over there the event has the advantage that has a very good name uh, among the players and the owners are just top class you know they're, they're good people and and uh, i love them i'm very close to them i'm actually going to acapulco next week as okay. a guest of the tournament and they're going to enjoy uh, that week over there and and i know how hard they work yeah. and how much pride they take in, in making the event good for the players. And then it doesn't hurt that it's right around the corner yeah. from Indian Wells. It's, it's something that players look for in, in terms of convenience. In, so if, if guys, some guys adjust better than others to, to time changes and some people yeah. might feel, hey, I'm going to Acapulco, right, crossing right over to, to Indian Wells and then Miami is mm -hmm. much more appealing than crossing right. two or three continents. It's weird looking at those top four seeds, right, and being like, Demon Hour is the one. I'm like, okay, I'm most sure about him because Verev coming off of, Verev the top seed coming off of just a gutting loss to Medvedev. Sitsipas out of the top 10 now, and Casper Ruud's trying to get back there as well. So I know it's a 250, but you're starting up for this, Acapulco, the Sunshine Double, Indian Wells, Miami. 
there's opportunities here, but who can get on their right footing? Sitsipas, you know, we think could get back into the top 10 soon, but he's out for the first time in quite some time. So, also, one handed backhand <laughs> lovers need him to get back. I had that in there. Yeah. First time ever in the ATP rankings that there's no one handed backhand players in the top 10. And as we were saying before or in this week, Nico, doesn't seem like it's going to be, you know, a, a rarity. Like there's not that many prospects coming up near the top of the level with a one-handed backhand. So it feels like we're going to be in this new two-handed world forever. <laughs> well, I, I, I like it. Uh, I'm enjoying this this week's tremendously, seeing the, the, the players come to Latin America, seeing the crowds uh, enjoy them playing really, really well. So looking forward to this couple of weeks in Mexico. Yep. Hopefully the weather will, will help. And, and the fact that they're having a tournament in yeah. Acapulco is a miracle. The effort that they've had to go through after the hurricane passed yeah. a couple of months ago is, is just a superhuman effort that uh, everybody is doing down there, particularly yeah. the, the tournament owners. Last thing I have, it's been another outstanding podcast with Nico Pereira on Tennis Channel Inside and I want to hear what you'd have to say, maybe advice-wise or thoughts on when Nadal is coming back, this Netflix thing, fouled by Indian Wells. If there's anything, I don't want to say disagree, but if there's any you know, advice you would have for a player of his caliber who's dealing with so many injuries, what kind of schedule he might have and what his level we should expect as fans. You want me to advise <laughs> Rafa Nadal? I know, I said it in wow. a weird way, but you know. That, that is pretentious. Yeah. That is pretentious. Um, yeah. Listen, I'm in awe of, of what he's done yeah. and, and, and the way he carries himself. Um, I love his team. I don't know him as well as I know the team around him, so right. I'm, I'm very, very happy for the ride that he's taken them. I believe this to be uh, the, the, the last stretch mm -hmm. uh, coming Paris and, and, and Paris, the Olympics. I know that, uh, that is very important for him to play for Spain. It would be ideal for him to be able to stay healthy and compete. So, but it's, it's all depend, it oh, all depends on his health. And when is he coming back? I, I believe he's coming back in the Middle East. He was very close to coming to Acapulco. It, unfortunately, it didn't happen. We, you know, we wanted to have him in Latin America. He's gone to Acapulco for so many years that, that uh, he, was, he considered yeah. it very, very, very uh, closely to, to, to come there. So yeah. I know he's coming to Indian Wells, a tournament he's loved dearly for, for uh, all of his, his career, particularly the last year. So yeah. advice, enjoy what you do, enjoy, enjoy your family, try to stay healthy. There is a lot more to life after you stop playing, yeah. but hey, uh, I just wish him to have... Uh, as good an exit as, as Roger, his good friend, had. And, and, yeah. and, and hey, thanks for everything you've given to tennis, man. I think as fans, too, we, we want to see him healthy is the number one yeah. thing. So the only advice that anybody on the outside should be having probably is just make sure you're playing when you're ready to play and you're not overtaxing he's, yourself. He's always done. Yeah. He's, yeah. He, he's always given yeah. his best. And when, you know that when he's coming yeah. back and playing, oh, yeah. you know he's ready. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see him on the court again. Nico Pereira, I can't wait to do another podcast with you down the road. Always a blast on Tennis Channel Inside and learning some stuff, especially your uh, carnival days in Rio. So, uh, <laughs> But thanks again, man, for coming on the podcast. Always a blast. I love it. Thank you very much and enjoy the tennis, guys. Thank you again to Nico Pereira. Always a blast talking tennis with him. And like I said, nobody does more for tennis in Latin America than that man. 
Uh, catch him calling all the action in Rio with Robbie Koenig on Tennis Channel's Airwaves. It's uh, one of my favorite commentary duos. There's a lot of good ones at Tennis Channel. So uh, those two, again, great to hear them working and uh, great to talk to Nico. And now we move along on Tennis Channel Inside In with Abigail Johnson making her debut at Tennis Channel this week on T2. She's also making her debut on this podcast. She is a rising star in the media world in tennis as a commentator, as an interviewer. And Abigail Johnson has quite the story. She's very young in her age and in her career, but she's already accomplished so much. We dive into her backstory, how she manifested this career, her thoughts on commentary, her thoughts on the game, getting into some other storylines, the women's tennis that's got Ega at the top, Sabalenka, the reigning major champ, Coco Golf, Is Emma Raducanu going to be back in the mix? We dive into all that and more with Abigail Johnson now on Tennis Channel Insider. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. Got another special guest. This is becoming like an increasingly British show. We've had a run of uh, people from the UK on this show, but rising star in the broadcast world, and I don't use that lightly. Uh, She's worked for BBC's coverage of Wimbledon, US Open, all the majors, ATP radio, emceeing events now as well. Just saw you in Delray last week. Uh, first time on the show, Abigail Johnson. Abigail, thank you so much for joining the show. Really excited to have you here. Now calling matches for T2 as well. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me, Mitch. And first week on T2, first week out here for Tennis Channel. I'm having a blast. I love what T2 offers, getting involved with all the different tournaments, giving a good overview of what's going on during the week. Uh, we're at a particular point of the season where there's lots happening mm-hmm. in different directions. So mm-hmm. to be able to take the best of that and keep people in the loop is, uh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. I've never jumped in and out of tournaments before. Mm-hmm. So uh, different surfaces, different time zones, it's all fun and games. So one of the things about you, and, I, and I, I've followed you for a little bit, calling all these tennis matches and being involved in tournaments, is that you have a following online. And, you know, it's not going to be weird for a while, right, how young you are. Like, it's always going to be a thing. Your youth stands out. But this is, by all accounts, what you've wanted to do. This was the dream from the beginning. You fell in love with tennis, and you wanted to be behind a microphone. Do I have that correct? It's interesting. I fell in love with tennis. I would say my first love was tennis, not broadcasting. So it was my love of tennis that led me to be where I am now. The first thing I had at my disposal that looked to me like a route into the tennis world was actually writing. So I've always loved words Mm -hmm. and I've always loved talking, if you couldn't tell, Um, (laughs) but not necessarily behind a microphone. I think when I was younger, academically, writing was what I was good at. So I hit a stage in my mid to late teens where I knew I wanted a career. I knew I loved tennis. I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I thought, well, look, I I adore tennis and and I'm good at the writing Mm. thing. Let's see if I can write for whoever will take me online and just see if there's something there. And there were a few tennis websites and blogs and stuff around at that point. (laughs) Um, And I I just got my foot in the door kind of writing features, put myself out there, happened across an advertisement on Twitter at the time uh, for a staff writing job at LiveTennis.com. And that was what really started to kind of put me into the tennis circle. How old were you when that happened? I was 18. Okay. Yeah, I, w- I was young. I was 17 yeah. when I started doing the, the 
And I thought I'd made it straight away because <laughs> I wrote this feature. The first thing I ever wrote, and this tells you about me in words, was a 3,000 word piece on Joe Wilfred Songa, which okay. went up on a, a website called The Changeover. I'm not sure if it's still active, but it was quite yeah. a, a thing back in the day and was picked up by Sports Illustrated. So oh. they kind of advertised it on their website. And I thought, oh, this is great. <laughs> I was reading Sports Illustrated every week, you know? Yeah. Um, you don't just rock it to stardom like that. It was a journey from there, but it was one I loved. And I, I was mm -hmm. really enjoying it. So I got that um, writing job. But I don't, I don't know where the broadcast dream started, but I deliberately, instead of taking that job full-time, I took it part-time because there was a part of me that was interested in, in broadcasting and commentary specifically. But back at that, I think it's different now with the way the landscape has moved, but right. back at that time, it was more obvious how I get myself into the writing right, you, field. You saw that it was not something you wanted to go all in on the writing side. You saw there was other avenues I th I think to explore. There was, there was something there. Um, also on the writing side of things, th there was more that kind of lent into the off-court side of things and talking points and all of that, which is fine, but that w I was more about the forehands and backhands. You want to be in the action. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. you're going to get more of that behind the microphone. <laughs> so I, I started figuring that out, and I didn't want to put all my eggs in that writing mm -hmm. basket. I, I didn't necessarily like the reputation that came with that as well, to be honest, in, in terms of kind of getting involved in some of those discussion points. And my thought process was, well, if I, if I take this if I take this job part time, then mm -hmm. I can see what can be pursued on the right. broadcast avenue. So I actually went to, to uni and I studied sports journalism with modules in broadcasting because it, it wasn't as simple at that time as, I don't know, start a podcast or something mm -hmm. like that. It was, it was a little less obvious where to get your experience. Um, and I, I, I'm just rambling with this now, Mitch. I don't know no, if I'm it, still answering your question. No, it makes is, sense. Yeah, this I, is... And I'm just wondering too, like in your family, and I think you have a couple siblings, right? Like, was there a level? A <laughs> was there a level of interest in tennis before you? Did your family have a history? Did you play competitively? Just trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, the the, the background in my family <laughs> yeah. is is football. Um, my okay. great granddad was actually the claim to fame is that he, he was. Uh, assistant manager at Leicester City back okay. in the day, football. Um, so there was there was more football background. The tennis was just, my mum was a huge tennis fan when she was younger. So that love of it was mm -hmm. there. And I think that meant that in the summer, mm -hmm. Wimbledon was on TV. Mm -hmm. So that was my first encounter with tennis. Um, when I, my first vivid memory of it, I know I'd seen it before, but my first vivid memory was the Wimbledon 2007 final when Venus Williams beat Marion Bartoli. Okay. I came back to Wimbledon a year later and, oh, this is cool. Venus <laughs> has a sister and they're at the top and they're <laughs> yeah. dominating. Like uh -huh. how, how amazing is that? I think we lost sight of that because yeah. they were so dominant for so long and Serena especially. And that got me hooked. I was always, I had always had a bit of an obsessive nature I've struggled to do things by half. If I'm in mm -hmm. something, I'm all in. If something's yeah. worth doing, it's worth doing properly. Right. It's that kind of thing. And once tennis had me, it completely had me. And it's one of those things where it wasn't a fad. It just never wore <laughs> off. Like, here I am. I don't know how many years later now. What, 15 years later or something? And it's uh, still going strong. So you were that kid that was watching tennis, like, in front of the TV. Didn't matter. Like, you were hooked. And you, you always found that love. The writing's interesting, too, because I believe you studied a lot of that at university, too, right? Was there some fiction writing in there, too? 
A, a little bit uh, leading up to uni, but to be honest with you, once I started on the uni route, yeah. tennis was absorbing so much of my time. But you were you were in school when you had already had experience working at a pretty high level too. So correct. That's a little bit of a different dynamic. You were. I wouldn't say backwards, but it was, okay, you had the experience, you had the foot in the door. Now it's like time to take these skills and try to transfer them. I always said, and I said it to my course leader as well, that I was uh, a terrible <laughs> uni student. Not in that I was a bad uni student. I uh -huh. came out of that with a, a grade that I was happy with and results that I was happy with. But I didn't actually ever want to go. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I just wanted, to, I knew that I wanted to work in tennis and I wanted to get out there, this writing job that I had. I didn't think it was my long-term and I didn't think it was secure long-term. So I had to kind of look at my yeah. options going forwards. Um, it's funny, like I've always had this urge to do things kind of right now. I thought I was going to rot away at uni from the ages of 18 <laughs> to 21. Yeah. I wanted to be out there working, but that was that was the door that kind of the path that yeah. opened to me. Um, <laughs> I can't really remember your initial question. No, it's, but it's definitely not the traditional college. I don't know how it is in the UK. I would assume it, it doesn't seem like the traditional college experience where you're like, I just want to be out there working. Right. I don't know many 18 to 22 year olds, at least in this country, that say that on but a given weekend in college. True, but my work is my passion. Right. And I think that was what factored. And, and that brings me back to what I was saying, I, I remember now, mm -hmm. um, that the work for me, even though I was at uni, that was always secondary to me. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna lie, we had long holidays. I put <laughs> those holidays to good use. I was on site at events. I was volunteering at ITF events. Yeah. I was doing social media. I was writing interviews. I was doing whatever I could to keep myself in those circles and around the game and very much in areas where I could learn right. because I, I'd introduced myself to the sport. My mum was a fan, but you know she, she didn't have a lot of playing experience or anything like that. I, I kind of introduced myself to tennis through the TV, I'm also going to say through live scores, like even subscriptions were not straightforward to me in terms of how do I actually watch the sport when it's not on mainstream TV. When I was younger, I got to know the players through watching their live stores, scores, mm -hmm. checking their stats, reading mm -hmm. interviews, yeah. highlights on YouTube. That was my route into actually kind of keeping up with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was very focused on what I was doing away from my degree. If you were to ask me kind of if I would be here now, mm -hmm without the degree that I did, potentially, because of all the stuff that I was doing on the side in terms of this volunteering and putting myself out there. But you gave yourself an extra, I don't want to say like chance, you strengthened the chances that you would be here. I think that's yes. a better way to put it. Yes. You still could have gotten here, but you were doing everything in your power to get to this point. And I think it's special to know, most people, most kids don't have that, to know what they wanted to do really and know that there was a tangible path. It might be unconventional because what in sports and what in tennis really is conventional. Definitely. But you knew what your calling was at a very young age. And I think that's a rare and special thing. I don't lose sight of how fortunate yeah. I am in that regard. And I definitely didn't see it coming because at 15, 16, I was still <laughs> wondering what I was going to do with myself. And yeah. creative writing comes into it because I thought I was going to be an author at one point. And actually, if I look back at that and you've reminded me of it, my love of words itself definitely comes into what I'm doing now and in the description <laughs> element of commentary. Yeah, you got to think of different ways yeah, to describe the vocabulary action. vocabulary yeah. and sentence structure and all of that, it still, it still factors, but... Yeah, I, I definitely don't take for granted kind of the early vision I had and that kind of progressively falling into place of what I wanted to do. But also I will say of uni, even if the course itself didn't 
mm-hmm. do the most contribution to where I am now. It definitely gave me time to pursue the things that I wanted to on the side and yeah. to find my footing in terms of where I wanted to go. Well, you're part of this next generation. I throw a couple other names in there um, that's kind of made it in tennis media at a young age, but by doing it in a different way. And a lot of it is trying to do as much as possible by any you know means necessary getting to this point. You've got experience calling matches on television, on radio, as a journalist, interviewing and as an MC. Do you have a favorite in that mix or is it too tough to decide? I love everything for different reasons. I think they all fall under the broadcasting umbrella, but there are different Mm -hmm. aspects of each one that make them very different in terms of what they offer and how you go about them. My joy above all others comes from radio commentary. Radio, okay. Being, and I guess it's rooted in the fact mm. I do like to talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's a good use, yeah. but you, you are the eyes of the listener. You have to, and the description, you paint the picture, you tell the story of the match. There are all these moving parts that you have to bring together. You, you provide the camera. Mm-hmm. And for me... I'm not even sure if you can tell here, but when I get excited, I talk fast. And um, I'm called Abigail. They might as well have called me Abby Gabble when I was younger because my, my mum would <laughs> was, tell was me. Was that a nickname? Well, no, but and I'm no. surprised it wasn't because no. my mum would tell me consistently, Abigail, you're gabbling, stop gabbling. <laughs> it helps now. And when you're calling yeah. tennis, tennis is regarded generally as the toughest sport to call for radio because you've got to call shot by shot. And yeah. some of those balls are traveling quick. Right. And for me, I think... I finally found a purpose for that gabbling because it it gets more information (laughs) into that space of time. And, you know, your voice rises with the excitement and it travels with the point. Mm. And even your tone of voice has to reflect what's happening on the court. I love that. Uh I've loved radio from the first moment that I stepped in a radio commentary booth. And I went in there for TV. You can practice for both, but for for TV, you know, I'd been listening to it for many years. You kind of had a feel for the rhythm of it and when to talk and when not to, although that was something I struggled with a bit and still am working on. Radio was new territory and I just went with it, went with instruction Mm -hmm. I got from the producer. And for me, with some of the commentary boots I get to do it from now at the Grand Slams, Just the most special thing. I absolutely love it. Isn't it great to just go back and think about all the times we got in trouble talking in school and being (laughs) like, well, it actually was, you're wrong, teacher, respectfully, like we're using it now. Uh, But but in all seriousness, I mean, you picked, the thing you said radio is fascinating because I would say it's the hardest one to master. It's really tough to call any sport on radio, especially tennis when you are the eyes and ears. I would also say given your nature, knowing a little bit about you, I know you've called matches on TV solo, but there's a lot of two-person, three-person boots TV. It's more, I would say it's more chemistry and it's more dealing with other people and figuring that relationship out. With radio, it's all pretty much on you, good and bad. And you know if it goes bad, there's one person to blame. Yeah, completely. (laughs) That's something I've worked on because the route that I came through into commentary, I was doing a lot of solo commentary. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing that, you're covering both roles. You are the lead, you're the host, but you're also the analyst. And also, I just started to interrupt, but in in UK and in world feed tennis, essentially just inside baseball, but there's a lot less commercial breaks. I didn't know that until sometimes there's no commercial breaks. Sure. I didn't know that until I started working here with some of the Wimbledon matches I saw in your feeds there. Um, So you are talking kind of straight through it. I guess Americanized television is very segmented out more so than maybe the freewheeling kind overseas. Yeah, I I would say that that's something for me to 
work on relentlessly. Whenever I ask for feedback, even after all these years, mm-hmm. when I think I'm improving on it, it, it tends to be less is more. And I've always got so, because I'm, because this is my passion. I've always got so much to say. And generally when I'm calling matches solo, I will take point by point notes on the match to keep my head in the Mm. game, to have a good awareness of what's going on, to work out when it's actually necessary for me to talk. Because you get so used as a solo commentator Mm -hmm. to covering the hosting role and covering the analyst role. And then particularly when it, when it comes to working with other people, you need to know where your place is and what yeah. your role is. Now, I'm fortunate that some people have given me the opportunity to actually cover both roles, which is mm-hmm. unique for me not having had a playing or coaching background. Um, but I would say the big thing when you're the lead is knowing there's there's kind of no room for ego in the commentary yeah. booth. Your job as the lead mm-hmm. is to bring the best out of your analysts, right. kind of tee them up to say what needs saying mm-hmm. and to give their first-hand insight that I can't relate to. Yeah. So that's something that I will continue to work on in, in that role. And yeah, definitely very different to radio when you, there's constant space to fill. It, uh-huh. On the TV, when, the, when people can see what's in front of them, it's letting mm-hmm. space breathe, letting the pictures work and adding to it, mm-hmm. always adding to it. I think all of us, particularly when we get tired during night shifts, are in danger, in danger of that over-talking. And I, I, yeah, I'm very aware of that. More with Abigail Johnson here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, we've gotten to a point with your career where you've done so many different things and you've had all these great experiences. Was there a first one, first moment where it was like a pinch yourself moment, a match or a booth you saw or just the U.S. Open maybe comes to mind looking down on maybe, you know, Arthur Ashe Court, but... Any moment where you first were like, wow, this is this is my life now. This is pretty cool. There's one that stands out, a mile, <laughs> because I've been grateful for every step I've taken, whether that's going to ITF events and being an MC and hosting at an ITF. And I remember Yanina Wickmeyer made a final, and I thought, wow, she's the first player I ever saw in the flesh, and now I'm interviewing her at a pro tournament mm-hmm. in a final. That's, that's quite crazy. And that was at ITF level. Mm-hmm. We step up. COVID was a massive time for me because we had a lot of British-specific stuff. And Stephen Farrow, former tournament director at Queen's, and Jamie Murray brought me in for Battle of the Brits. Huge for me in terms of staying at the NTC and being around these players and getting to know them and getting to cover their matches. Like every British player, Emma Raducanu played that. And then you had Andy Murray, who had a concert, (laughs) Dan Evans. So, So that was huge for me. And every step, I've really appreciated it and been... Like this is the world that I was watching from a distance and now I'm within it and Mm -hmm. and trying to have that perspective. But then it does become your life and it does become your work. And there was one moment where it really hit me in the moment and that was Australian Open 2022, sat at the baseline on Rod Laver Arena, the best commentary booth for me in the entire world, that bunker on Mm -hmm. Rod Laver Arena at the foot of it, seeing the grandeur of the stadium and, and being meters from the players, goosebumps. Mm. I was calling a quarterfinal match, Rafael Nadal against Denis Shapovalov. It looked pretty straightforward initially. It went two sets all. I got on the call, I think, maybe in the fourth set. And when Nadal went up a break in the fifth set, I've watched a lot of Nadal matches in my time. He was already at the top of the game. That's the longevity when mm-hmm. I started watching tennis. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was watching him as a kid fan. Right. Now I'm on, in the booth as he goes up a set in the final set. Uh, sorry, as he goes up a break in the in final, the final set. set. And I've watched enough Nadal matches <laughs> to know I felt in my gut at that point that he was going to win the tournament. 
and I've got it on my WhatsApp. I sent my mum a message saying, I'm commentating on history right now. Yeah. And in that moment, I choked up because <laughs> I was like, how did I get here? Yeah. I was a fan in my living room. I never thought I'd see this place in the flesh, wow. let alone be sat at the baseline with a microphone <laughs> on the world feed calling Rafael Nadal. Unreal for me. That that was the real moment where it actually, for a few seconds, it sank in. And I actually yeah. needed a, a, I needed my co-com to come yeah. and take it from him. He didn't know. To this day, he yeah. doesn't know. But it, it took me a point or two to kind of Lock get back in, in yeah. the moment but wow. that that was surreal that was really surreal and that will actually stay with me i think for the rest of my life well that's a cool story hopefully you stop by the sports books when you realize the doll is gonna win then gotta stay out of that yeah. stuff but i mean it looks iffy didn't but it that, as well it did. in the but, final but you knew it was coming and, and that's a cool story because it doesn't have to like everyone has different highlights and moments when it all comes together and you're like wow this is special Speaking of which, you've gotten to interview some of the greats too. You know, not just pool interviews. We're talking one-on-one. I've seen some of the photos with Djokovic, Ash Barty. Does that ever not feel weird to you that you're getting to talk to some of these champions? And how do you approach talking to someone that is literally larger than life? It's a good question. I Maybe the Ash Barty one was a really helpful one for me because it, it came before she was big time. Okay, I got the first one-on-one with ash when she came back to the sport after taking a break and playing cricket and uh nottingham i kind of think of it as one of my home venues where tennis is Mm. concerned it was the first place i watched pro tennis and it was the wta event there she'd come back in qualifying it was only her second tournament back and i saw her name in the draw and i thought wow it's the girl who won wimbledon and she was doing stuff at the slams as a teenager in the doubles and we we kind of knew the story that it got a bit too much and she stepped away and I wondered if she'd be up for talking about it. And she, she gave me 20 minutes one-on-one um, just chatting. She was ranked 600 and something. <laughs> and I can tell you when it was, because in her book, if you buy her book, um, Ash Barty, My Dream Time, she's got a timeline at the beginning of the book. The exact ranking that she gives you at the beginning of that timeline is her ranking when and we had that sit down. Um, and she never changed, you know. She was mm-hmm. so personable. She was so down to earth, very honest. And actually, I had another catch-up with her the next year. And at that point, I'd not been around it so much. So I didn't expect anything. I didn't (laughs) expect her to remember who I was. And she comes down the corridor and she sees me and she goes, oh, nice to see you again, (laughs) which was lovely. Yeah. And then what she went on to do, Uh phenomenal. I think maybe she had one title at that time when I caught up with her again. And then she was a dominant world number one in a manner that we've not seen since Serena. So... I think with the areas I've worked in, being around these ITF events, getting stuck in at kind of local events, I see the human aspect of these players. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of them before they've actually gone on Mm -hmm. to achieve the heights of what they've achieved. So that definitely, I see tennis players as human beings. And I'm also being a bit younger. Often I've been more of a peer of them, which is a a different look at it. I think maybe it makes me a bit more relatable to them. For sure. Them a bit more relatable to me. The different one would be the likes of Djokovic. I did have that (laughs) one-on-one with Novak Djokovic (laughs) at at the Boodles exhibition. That was 2019 now. And I was just so excited for the opportunity. I remember having a suspicion. You always got kind of Djokovic or Nadal turn up to that event. It was a very popular, it still is a very popular one for Um, the top players pre-Wimbledon just the week before if you don't want to play a full tournament you can go to the Boodles you can get one match in two matches in on conditions that replicate Wimbledon so it's a big draw and I know there's uh, contests from Hurlingham now as well they do a similar thing 
Um, but Nadella played, Djokovic had played, and the week before we got the email through Novak's playing. And I started fist pumping. You're I said, go, Mom, yeah. I'm, I'm going to interview <laughs> Novak Djokovic. And for me, I'd wanted to do it so much. Yeah. I was just excited. I think I get more nervous now than I used to. For me, I always had this thing of telling myself, even if I think I feel nervous, it's excitement. Those yeah. two feelings are actually really similar. It's no different than athletes playing. Like they they think something's off when they're not nervous because you're ready to go out there. And these are trained <laughs> professionals. Like you're going to, nerves are normal. You just, obviously it's a surreal thing, but I'm sure, you know, first question gets going, you break the ice. Then it's just, you're, you're uh, doing your craft. Sure. I, I put my <laughs> hand out for a handshake and I said, I'm Abigail. And we, we went. And there you um, go. Away you are. I remember, I remember that one actually quite yeah. vividly because I, I just enjoyed the opportunity. Yeah. Like how many people get to stand there and interview Novak like Djokovic, one mm-hmm. of the greatest players of all time. So yeah, I wanted to tick them all off. I wanted Serena. <laughs> I wanted Federer. I wanted Nadal. Two of those of, left before yeah. my time but <laughs> still time <laughs> who I mean, knows who could get knows him in the, could get him in the post life too well you know it's a tr- it's a really tremendous story and uh, one of perseverance and you know from the region you are you mentioned those players on the way up itfs radikani you said her name now you've got a closer gl- glimpse at her and probably have been asked about her as much as anyone but you saw her on the way up it was the most meteoric rise maybe in the history of tennis where are we at right now and how optimistic are you that in the short term we're going to see her build and keep getting better? I don't like talking about Emma. I will do it okay. for All sure. Right. I, 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 I said short term. I wasn't going to go off. Yeah, just, no, you but know. I will explain why yeah. I don't. Yeah. And it's because there's so much noise and there are so many opinions. Yeah. And to be honest with you, she doesn't need more. I, right. I mean, I met her when she was... She was 15, 16 years old. And you, the first match I saw her play live was against, of all people, Paola Badosa at a 25K. Wow. Huh. We, we were in Bolton in the UK. And it was two former big hitters of the game, Raducanu winning a slam, Badosa winning Indian Wells. That's the number you know, two in the world. Yeah, yeah. It, it was two up-and-coming serious players mm-hmm. facing off in the backyard, essentially. Yeah. I'm not sure they were even on the main court at that <laughs> tournament, but you could you could tell yeah. just Emma had a way of hitting the ball and a court awareness mm-hmm. that for her age, that stood out. In fact, for, for anyone at that tournament, that stood out in that field. She lost to Jodie Burridge that week. Her and Jodie had quite the rivalry going on kind of during the 2020 season. And it was a bit of a question as to actually who would break out of wow. them first. I think Emma was kind of, kept behind closed doors a little bit. COVID maybe helped her because she had those Battle of the Brits and UK Pro League, which she won opportunities to develop against class players from our country. But there was not a huge global spotlight on her. She was enjoying herself. She was having a great time. I remember her saying to me after she she actually played Andy Murray and Jody in, in a mixed doubles match uh-huh. at Battle of the Brits. She yeah. said, most fun I've ever had on a tennis court. You could see Jody in that moment. She got a little bit tense. Like she'd always wanted to play doubles right. with Andy. And uh, <laughs> she has high expectations of herself, Jody. And um, yeah. at the back end of that match, I think she got a bit nervous. Emma was loving it. And yeah. you could tell that about her early on, that she had this kind of youthful energy about what she was doing. Yeah, And a lot of natural ability and a very smart girl as well and Mm -hmm. and very focused so 
for us that had been around her, obviously no one would have called her to win a slam like that. And very much the way opened up for her with, you know, certain players that fell maybe in that tournament and, and right. the road in front. But she always had the potential to do it long term. My concern for her, even at the time, was that she just handled what was in front of her. And she did it phenomenally. She yeah. didn't drop a set from qualifying. But I even said at the time, I said, look at the road Layla Fernandez has come well, from. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that was insane, In right? comparison, she, she yeah. knocks off what? like Sabalenka, Osaka. Osaka, who was in form at that point. It, yeah. it, was, it was quite the contrast. And, and I just wondered about amplified expectations for her in the aftermath. Because anyone who knows their tennis mm -hmm. can look at that and see the situation and say, okay, it's outrageous what Raducanu's just done. But also... Yeah, there's no transitive property in tennis because styles make the matchups and there is the, there is the energy that is an exponent factor. And I think that's a, a big point. We we saw Emma come through at Wimbledon, made that you know run with the, that same year to I think the fourth round. Yeah, that was big. Um, and, and I don't want to pile on too. It's hard. It sounds like you're describing her as somebody that is very process-oriented, focuses on what's in front of you, locked in. It's so hard. How could anyone handle what was thrown at you after you win a major like that, you know, and it should also be pointed out where you're from. You know, tennis is, is as passionate. There's maybe no more support worldwide than there is in the UK for a, t for a champion. So add that to it and the expectations and everything rises. Anything from anywhere else in the world, <laughs> if that had happened, take that to the UK and times it by five, times it by 10. I think for anyone, even someone who was not as young as she was, mm -hmm. it would have been a yeah. lot. Yeah. And she was so mentally secure throughout that time period that, I almost started thinking that she could, you know, just keep keep on going. But, you mm -hmm. know, there was a lot of change around her at the time. I think just in, in terms of your question, if I come to that, the one thing I would say is that, and the one thing I'm happy to say, is that this is her best shot at a reset. Having just been out and had the surgeries, ranking drops, expectation mm -hmm. drops, because yeah. people are finally starting to understand that, she had a meteoric rise. She didn't climb every rung of the ladder. Yeah. There was experience that she was lacking that she needed to be able to mm -hmm. be sustained. Yeah. They didn't give her that time to grow. Maybe she's just bought that time for herself. Mm -hmm. And this is her best shot at relieving, yeah. I think, both internal and external <laughs> expectation mm -hmm. to start climbing the ladder yeah. the way she wants to. Right. And the way she always had potential to, she always had a talent level. She always had potential. And the way things went after mm -hmm. the U.S. Open, I think people have lost appreciation for that. She's a great tennis player. Mm -hmm. And she's an impressive person with her smart mind and that aspect of her as well. So I just wish her the best, honestly. I really do just wish her the best for the future. And I think this is her best shot at alleviating some of that ridiculously suffocating pressure that happened after New York. She's still an exceptional athlete, uh, hits the ball very, very well, and, you know, is healthy now. That's a big thing, too. Similar to Bianca Andreescu, someone that rises to the top a little slower than Emma, but had the injury bug. So we want to see him healthy and out there. Um, Abigail Johnson here on Tennis Channel Insight. And I do want to run through some of the current storylines in the game. On the women's side, it's like every time we go back to the Middle East, it's like, okay, time for Iga to win again. Do you see it the same way? <laughs> I, 
She just she, loves playing there though. It's she just it's does. crazy. And she just loves playing the sport full stop, yeah. Sri Lanka. And what she's <laughs> done in the aftermath of Barty is so impressive because I remember when Barty stopped ever so suddenly exactly a couple of years ago now, she became default world number one, Sri Lanka. And you wondered how she'd respond to that because she'd not got to that position for the first time on her own merit. It had been handed to her. She very quickly proved <laughs> that she deserved to be there. And the dominance that she built up from there is, it wasn't across surfaces like Barty's was, but in terms of, I mean, 30 plus match winning streaks. That's where it started, yeah, right and, after. Yeah, and the amount of silverware that she's pulled in. is She might go down as the best. I mean, she's got a chance to make a run at Chrissy as the best clay court player ever. She's young enough. She's got, you know, there's a chance there. My thing watching this, and I know she won last week uh, in Doha, and now we're on to Dubai, the thousand level event. She still has so much to improve on her new serve that she's still winning that it's almost scarier. Like, okay, this is... Iga's B or C level game where she's still playing some loose service games with that new motion, but the return numbers are a joke. It's like, how much better can she actually be? I mean, if you look at it like this, she's <laughs> yeah. still in her early 20s. Yeah. She was, what, 20 years old when she mm -hmm. won that first Roland Garros trophy. Yeah. Uh. So she, and she's generally fit as well. Mm -hmm. she's, she's got time on her hands. She's also probably still being forced to improve. She kind of rocketed up to the top of the game. She's been there longer now. She's been on the radar. She's been the target. So people have analyzed a little bit more. Getting pushed now too. I think that's yeah. good for her with Sabalenka up, Coco getting a major, Rabakina's in the mix. Like I think it's competition is always going to be good to bring out the best in all these players. Of course, because it forces you to develop mm -hmm. more. And I know she got very shaky with her forehand just in the lead up to the US Open last year. There are all these things that she's got to be thinking about <laughs> that, that force her to become an even better player. And for someone that's already been so yeah. dominant, that's quite scary for the yeah. rest of the tour. I, I mm -hmm. think she's at the, in that top group to yeah. stay for a long time. Sabalenka had that weird match this week losing to Donna Vekic, who they're still head to head things there because it's like six and two Vekic. And I don't know if you saw that match, but it was weird. Go, has a point to go up a double break, loses it. Nice play by Vekic, but then just gets bageled in the third set. There's still a, there's still a fascination factor with Sabalenka. Where I wonder, she's such a big match player, Abigail, that in majors, she's been the most consistent by far. But I wonder her headspace on the non-major events week to week. See, that doesn't concern me so much for someone that wants to be a really top player. Yeah. It's all about the Grand Slams. Yeah. More concerning for me was the way she lost the US Open final. Because that made me remember why I didn't think Sabalenka was going to win a slam. She convinced me in January 2023 when she won Adelaide. Do you think the crowd, Adelaide, though? Do you think it was the crowd? It like, doesn't really matter if yeah. it was the cloud or crowd. <laughs> doesn't really matter if it was the crowd or not. Yeah. If you're in that, if you've got yourself to a Grand Slam mm -hmm. final and she's hitting the ball bigger than anyone else, she's mm -hmm. up against a counter puncher in Coco Golf, a very good one, but a player who she should be able to hit through like she did at the Australian Open and like she did for a set in New York. Yeah. That was two sets of self-destruction. And fair play to Goff because her for game sure. is not to hit Sabalenka off the court. It is to facilitate a self-destruction. That's exactly <laughs> what she got. It was it was yeah. a free fall for two sets and it was yeah. really hard to watch That's for someone way. of Sabalenka's capabilities. So for her... I think she's settling into that Grand Slam champion attitude a little bit more. 
did not concern me when she got okay. blown away in the Brisbane final by Elena Rebekina. I still had her as favorite for the Australian Open for that reason. I yep. think she's got the timing U.S. Open final aside, pretty much nailed down. Yeah. She reached the semifinals at all four Grand Slams last season, uh -huh. four different surfaces. She did that as a freshly crowned Grand Slam champion. That was very impressive, that level of consistency where it matters to me. There is a concern that sometimes she will still free fall, and it happens from a winning position against Mukova well, that's, at Roland yeah, Garros. It's going to bring that up, like the U.S. Open. It, were you not convinced that Roland Garros, that because uh, that one... You could make a case if I was going to play devil's advocate that that was the worst loss that she's <laughs> that she had last year. Yeah, it was true. five two match point. I know it was final versus semi, but there's still and you put it perfectly with Coco, right? Like facilitate destruction because I had that off the wall take when she was playing Siniakova. Like Coco just beat Pliskova, ended her winning streak in a row. Um, but when she plays someone that isn't, you know, going to destruct that might push a little bit, run it's a little actually harder for golf. Yeah, definitely. I think with Goff, it will always be riding a little bit on the opponent's racket when she's up against someone like Sabalenka because she's never going to match Sabalenka for the strike up the ground. That's something that she has acceptance of with the game style that she's developed. Yeah. And I have nothing but respect for the work that Goff has put in with her new team over the past few months. For me, it's going to sound crazy to say it, but I also think not quite Raducanu level, but the way that Goff came into the arena, I think the expectations for her were far too heightened far too soon. Yep. She knocks off an under par Venus Williams in the first round of Wimbledon 2019, and because she was 15, it was big news. For her, she had the composure at that point. I don't think she had the game. I'm not sure she had the game until last season. And it was I last would agree season with that. Yeah, and it was last season where she won her first slam. So that yeah. kind of sticks to the script. But mm -hmm. I, I think she's a serious top player now, Goff. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have said that this time last year. I would have said that she was still pushing. Have you kept up with the coaching news on both tours? Or are you locked in with who's working with who? Because it's been a doozy for the month of February. For, oh, for, for both tours in terms of <laughs> yeah, coaching? Yeah, for both terms and, the, and coaching the, changes. You don't typically <laughs> see them make moves at this point in the year, no. I think it's fair to say. And the coaching carousel <laughs> is always one that I struggle to keep up with yeah, anyway, it's like, to be well, honest. More Tagu and Holger back again. Yeah. Like, this will go for a couple months. They'll break up and then they'll... But no, in all seriousness, it's just the timing of it. Like, there's different reasoning, and we can understand some more than others. Like, I think Tom Hill did a great job with Maria Sakari, but at a certain point like coaches in team sports, maybe you don't hear the message as much. The relationship runs par. Everyone does it respectful. Okay. When you start shuffling coaches and bringing people back, maybe like Holger has done, that's when we have to kind of wonder what's happening and wonder if there's more pressure on the outside to win now. Because as I said last week, Holger looks at his peers, Yannick Sinner, Carlos Alcaraz, and says, I want that. Like, I want to get to that level. Why am I not there? Well, we need to change something. 100%. The pressure for the likes of Holger Runa, for Runa himself, that comes from yeah. within. Mm -hmm. he, he can be his own worst enemy, I think, in that department. And he's passionate. I, I like Runa. I think I relate to him in a way that other people can't because in my own field, yeah. I have that all-in <laughs> passion that to yeah. some people doesn't look sustainable. And, and for Runa, I think maybe it did reach a point last year where it wasn't sustainable, where he was pushing for it with everything and, and was out of gas and was falling short of these other guys that he has all the talent to be in the mix with. I just feel like he didn't quite pace himself the way he needed to last year. And then it becomes 
It was after Wimbledon. Yeah. Like Wimbledon, he was he oozed the Alcaraz in a, in a tightish quarterfinal match. Everybody in this building would have put him ahead of Sinner at the time in the pecking order. And then it all fell apart, to your point, probably didn't pace himself properly for the grind of a full season, which is an, not an uncommon thing for young players, by the way. Yeah, I think disappointment really kicks for someone like Runa. Mm-hmm. And the, the bubble burst a little bit midway through last season. And he's been struggling since, but fair play to him for engaging in the struggle. He's still seriously competitive. And for someone that competitive and that talented and that good, it's going to come together for him. It's just a question of when he it does. He's still mm-hmm. so young. It's mm-hmm. incredible to me now. The, the youth of some of the guys that are coming through, I'm more used to seeing it in the women's game. I think... Even physically, there's less difference between a girl's body and a woman's body than a boy's body and a man's body. If Carlos Alcaraz getting to the world number one ranking at 19, you just would not have called anything mm-hmm. like that happening five years ago. Yeah. In the era of tennis that we've been in, that has been relentlessly dominated by these guys in their 30s who know how to play best of five set tennis. Yeah. It, it, there's a Djokovic is still very present. Who knows what Nadal could do if he's fit? But these younger guys are, are established now. Yeah. They're here to stay, and it's becoming even more of a younger guy's game than it has been over the past decade. Glad to hear Alcaraz is okay after rolling his ankle yesterday. Um, just I don't want to say snake bitten because he is going to be okay, but hasn't had the traction in the last couple months. We hope he hits the ground running because now he's like we talk about getting pushed, right? Here comes Sinner, who's unbeaten this year. It's nice to see that. You know, there was a time when we were like, Alcraz is just going to win everything. But most people understand, like, no, there's going to be forces that emerge. We might not know who it's going to be, but this is uh, a real a challenging time for a player in a sense that he's got another contemporary with him chasing him and maybe doing a little better right now. I think it was Novak Djokovic that actually got under Alcaraz's skin. Um, I didn't know if I was nitpicking at the time, but for me, Alcaraz has never been quite the same since he lost to Djokovic from championship point up in the Cincinnati final. I mean, what he did at Wimbledon against a man who had not lost on that court for years to edge him in five sets in the final, that was beyond even anything I think we expected for Carlos Alcaraz with the form he'd been in up to that point last season. And there were moments where he looked scary throughout 2022 and the beginning of 2023. Alcaraz, just in terms of his completeness as a player, mm-hmm. as a young age, both physically and mentally, shot selection, tennis IQ, had it all. To me, that looked quite crushing having had that advantage over Djokovic mm-hmm. and not being able to close out that match, mm-hmm. he's not had the same aura about him since then. And since then, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if, I think that's more to do with him than the way anyone else is looking at him. It's true. And he's, expectations he has right. himself. He was used to, and it's understandable. We'd all be used to this. He'd always checked off boxes, got new level and just passed people on the road. It's like driving a car around the freeway. I'm just going to pass this person, this person. He beats Djokovic, he wins the Wimbledon final, number one, and then all of a sudden this guy, this old all-time great champion, outfoxes him in Cincinnati. So you're sitting to yourself like, how does this happen? This never happens to me. How could this happen to me? And it was such a quality match. (laughs) That was the best match. I mean, that was four hours in the heat. Djokovic was, I don't want to say dead and buried, but pretty close in that second set. And then just hang around, hang around, hang around, and find a way. It was remarkable stuff. 
but no, I, I think we're setting up for a good 2024 on the men's game because we have a clash of arrows. We have people jockeying. We could get back to a situation where the big three, big four with Murray, just kind of spoiled us. Everyone doing well on every surface. I think it's going to be a, an era of runs of, okay, we got some grass court guys who are going to do a little better here. The clay court guys are going to come out. You'll still see everyone in the mix, but the days of Roger Federer making like 10 straight major finals might be a while before that happens again. It's a great <laughs> mix. And much as we were saying with Sviontek being challenged more, mm -hmm. And you alluded to it, all these guys are challenging each other. Alcaraz has so much respect for Djokovic, for Sinner. Yeah. He's a massive fan of Yannick Sinner and the way he plays tennis. And it, I, I love to see that because he struggles so much with him on the court. But I think yeah. having that respect, you saw it with Nadal and Federer mm -hmm. and their progressions up the game. And mm -hmm. Nadal building that one-handed backhand of Federer's and Federer having Nadal as that target across other surfaces. It factors, it matters. And... I think Sinner maybe now will have to face a little bit of what Alcaraz faced in terms of being the, the young kid on the radar and has been around a little bit longer now for people to suss out inroads. Yes. How can they get to him? Sinner probably helped out the rest of the tour with Alcaraz with what he's been able to do against him uh -huh. in matchups. How am I giving him trouble? Yeah. And Sinner's now that target. He's very arguably the best player in the world right now with the current form that he's riding with the results that i mean backing up his first grand slam title with a title run at his next tournament yeah. building on the strong back end of last season it's so deeply impressive from a guy who's also still very much at the beginning of his career it's just a really exciting time right now on the atp tour so abigail johnson wrapping up tennis channel inside in always a blast to uh talk to a fellow tennis nerd, nerd like myself uh, this weekend, calling matches. What should we have uh, the next couple of days to be excited for with the women at their first Masters in Dubai and uh, the men action on the clay in Rio and, uh, you know, hardcore tennis in the Middle East as well in Doha, which we'd be excited about. Well, you said it. It's a, it's a real mix <laughs> of stuff. I had to think about it. I was like mentally like, where, where are we at? You've nicely tipped, yeah. <laughs> ticked everything off there. Uh, I, I find it very interesting to see who's signed up to play on the clay in the lead up to Indian Wells and Miami. Not surprised that Alcaraz took that precautionary mm -hmm. uh, retirement in his first round match when he knows he's got title points to defend at Indian Wells, semi-final run to defend at Miami. But there are different storylines wherever you look. I just came off the mic calling the match between Zhao Fonseca, junior number one last yeah. year, against Arta Fis. It's the first time in Fis' career. He's 19 where he's faced a player that's younger than him and he felt that. Uh, and Fonseca is big news. He's mm -hmm. a really capable player and the likes of him in the mix, this is a great opportunity where there's a widespread of tournaments, different areas of the world, different continents, people like him. He's a wild card Brazilian in Rio, get an opportunity. Yeah. And they're the storylines I'm looking at more often than not. That's why I spend a lot of time around the ICF circuit, around the challenger tour. I'm looking for those next players that are coming through. I'm seeing the depth of the game mm -hmm. and what these players are able to contribute and how much talent there is right the way down the rankings. And for weeks like this, there are your storylines <laughs> of can Triontek build momentum? Yeah. Can Cam Norrie defend his title in Rio now that the draw's been blown open? But look for those names with potential look yeah. at those younger players look at, at the players that have maybe built a bit of form recently and, and what they could do in a week like this that's a, a little bit in the shadow leading up to indian wells and miami artifice himself he won his first atp title the week before roland garros last season yeah. this is when 
players can start to build those foundational blocks. Great opportunities and really great storylines to keep track of as we come to the end of the week. The grind doesn't stop. The tennis calendar doesn't stop. Uh, Abigail Johnson, it was a pleasure getting to know you and chat with you here on this podcast. Someone that I'll have to say always looks happy in all your photos working. Like you really do enjoy what you do. So uh, onward and upward, it's just the beginning. But uh, you're always welcome on this show. Hope to do it again. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you so much. I just want to say I'm, I'm so grateful to get to do what I love. And, and there's not a day, even if there are some kind of tougher outings, there's never a day that I'm not grateful. And I'll, I'll always aim never to lose sight of that. So thank you. It's been great to come on and reflect and look forward. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you to Abigail Johnson and thank you to Nico Pereira, two outstanding guests who I hope I get to talk to in the future. And a reminder that Tennis Channel Inside In is part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It's available on all your podcast platforms. Just go to Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Search Tennis Channel Inside In, subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review while you're there if you'd be so kind. But when you subscribe to the show, that's it. Every Thursday, you will wake up with a new episode loaded automatically to your listening device. And support our social media accounts where you'll find podcast promos, clips, and some of our outstanding articles by the journalists we have, as well as match highlights. So you don't want to miss that. For Abigail Johnson and Nico Pereira, my name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening to the show. We're back next week with another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In that you're not going to want to miss. But until then, keep enjoying the game, and I'll talk to you next Thursday. <laughs>